Welcome to the Doctor Patient Forum, a no holds barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode of the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. Uh, I'm Claudia. Bev is with us, and today we're going to be discussing what data mining is, what NARCS care is, how it affects prescribers, how it affects pain patients. And Bev has dedicated hundreds of hours to NARCS care. Bev, only because of you. Well, I believe it's only because of you <laughs> that NARCS care is finally being discussed. Bev, briefly, what is this episode going to cover? So this episode, we're basically going to cover what NARCS care is. We are talking to a doctor, Dr. Neil, who gives us kind of an overview of what data analytics is, what data mining is, how it affects doctors. So as you'll hear later, Neil explains that NARCS care is data analytics, where they basically take a bunch of information from different data sources and then spit out a score to determine whether you're high risk of overdose or opioid misuse. In that, there are four different scores. You have a narcotic score, a stimulant score, a sedative score, and an overdose risk score. Nobody knows what goes into these completely because it's black box proprietary and that's a big part of the problem. But most people don't even know what NARCS care is. This is going to be a two-part episode. The next episode, we're going to interview three pain patients who have been affected by NARCS care. And then we're going to listen to some portions of we were on a radio show 1a with npr and we're going to listen to portions of that wow fancy npr you know i know you remember a few years ago bev i was talking with you on the phone and and i said you know bev i don't think narcs care is a big deal because doctors don't seem to think it's a big deal and you said but it is when i was denied opioids in the hospital without horrible hospital stay and then i started researching why that would happen my state didn't have narcs care yet in 2017 but i was reading all of this information about narcs care and i was like this is something they're using to make medical decisions even though they claim not to but every single doctor you ask would say, it's no big deal. We don't even know what it is. We ignore it. And it's no big deal. So you're wasting your time. And then when you said that to me that last time, I was like, Claudia, we have to find a doctor who's willing to help us look into it. And that's when you were like, okay, hold on. And you got Neil on the phone, which is who we'll be talking to today. Bev, I also just remembered, remember when I called uh, Apris? We did it. Yes, we did it together. Do you remember? You're like, I think we're looking in or we own a pain management or we might own and do you remember what she said she was like well we advertise this as something that is really to help see if a patient is at risk but really what's a really good part of our program that we don't advertise as much is it's easy for a doctor to turn in another doctor that they think are prescribing too much do you remember that I do because I was sitting in the gym parking lot so listen folks let us know what you think of this podcast. I feel like discussing this could be a watershed moment for both doctors and patients. And don't forget, if you like what you heard today, click like, 
click share. I'm just going to give a brief explanation. NarcScare is a robust analytics application and clinical decision support tool that helps prescribers and dispensers analyze controlled substance data from prescription drug monitoring programs. It assesses overdose risk and manage substance misuse or substance use disorder, resulting in more informed prescribing and dispensing decisions. Because I know our listeners, they're probably wondering, well, what does this have to do with me? So from our listeners, when you go to the hospital, if you're in the emergency room and you're suffering, an emergency medicine doctor could say, you have a high NARCS care score. I don't feel comfortable sending in a script for pain medication. So that right. I just wanted to, I wanted to bring this all together for the listeners. Is, is it an algorithm, Ben? It is an algorithm. It's definitely an algorithm. It's like garbage in, garbage out. They take from different data sources. And, you know, the data sources that we know about are criminal justice data. They pull from claims data. They somehow know what our diagnoses are, whether that's from the electronic health records or insurance claims data, they never made it clear. But you know, when Maya did her article in Wired last year, they threatened to sue. APRIS or Bamboo Health threatened to sue Wired. They wanted Maya to redact information that was absolutely true. And they never followed through with that. But they're serious. I mean, they didn't want this information out there. And so they started like feverishly taking things down off the internet that showed the information that we have seen, which is that they use criminal justice data. And they use diagnoses like PTSD, any mental health diagnosis goes against somebody, which you'll hear later on when we talk to some of the women. I want to explain quickly what I mean by garbage in, garbage out. The data sources that they use, such as the PDMP claims data in their marketing materials, they said if they have access to electronic health records, they will use them. So we don't know if they do or not, but we do know they get our diagnoses from somewhere. But there are so many errors in these data sources, like the PDMP. So anytime there's an error that automatically gets pulled into the algorithm, and then even if you correct it in the PDMP, who knows if it's ever corrected in the algorithm. So the fact that nobody knows all the data sources that go into these algorithms, there's no way for anybody to check to see if the information is even correct or not. Another issue with their data sources is that they use MNE, which is milligrams of morphine equivalent. We have this information on our website from Dr. Nabarun Desgupta. He gave an FDA presentation last year about this because he did a study on it that MME isn't standard just the formulas to figure it are not standard there I think are four formulas and if you figure it with one formula you may come up with 80 MME and another it might be over 200. The reason that's a problem because one of the NARCS care scores if you have 90 MME or above you're automatically at a 650 or higher on a scale of zero to a thousand in their score which is at the top one percent of all scores. So immediately, if you're getting 90 MME, you are going to be flagged and your doctor will probably be flagged. And who knows which formula they're using. So you might not even be getting 90. You might be getting actually 40 with another formula, but you're going to be flagged. So that's all in this also. So it's all of these data sources that are with high errors and MME formulas, which is not standard data sources, which we don't even know what they are and could be incorrect all to spit out these four scores to do what because the doctors don't even know what it means 
Another thing we've learned about this score that you can see in some of their training manuals is like we said, there's a narcotic score, sedative score, stimulant score, and overdose risk score. That overdose risk score is the one we tend to focus on a lot because that's the one that's in big numbers at the top of, of many PDMP in the States. But the narcotic score it's in their training manual that you could not even have a prescription for an opioid ever at all, and you can still have an elevated narcotic score if you have a sedative like a benzo or a sleeping pill or a muscle relaxer. I don't know how they figure that, but it is very possible that you can have an elevated narcotic score and never have ever even received a narcotic. So today have a very special guest. Uh, he's one of my favorite doctors. I don't say that to all the doctors, but I say this to this doctor. He's an anesthesiologist who's based out of Pennsylvania. He's a former military physician. Yes, folks, he served our country. He was a lieutenant commander with the U.S. Naval Corps. He served our country. I want that to marinate with people who are listening to this. Because when somebody serves our country, we should be going above and beyond for them. And we've not done that. So we're going to be discussing what data mining is. And this doctor has a wealth of knowledge. He brings more than 20 years to the table. He's kind enough to come on the show to let people know a little bit about data mining, what it is, and how it's affected the doctor-patient relationship. Welcome to the show, Dr. Neil. Well, thank you for having me on. It's real it's a real pleasure to be here. You know, Neil, when I started to advocate years ago, my pain patient stories used to keep me awake until I started to hear from some of the doctors. I know Bev will agree. Once we started to hear what was happening to the doctors, it would, you know, I would stay awake at night thinking about it because it's the war on prescribers. And we're not going to talk too much about your case, but all I will let the listeners know is that you have been terrorized by the government. And we're going to not really discuss that aspect, but we're going to discuss things like narcs care today and data mining and my first question for you neil is what is data analytics and how long has it been used in medicine data analytics itself the the foundation of data analytics is very old it comes from around the 1800s when astronomers try to predict the path of the planets the best way i can explain it to you is that when you have a small child and you're trying to teach him how to make a circle, you draw a couple of dots in the form of a circle and you say, connect the dots. And that's like connecting the path of the planets. If you see certain sightings of a planet, say on day one and then day 50 and then day 60 and then day 72, you would be able to connect the dots. What data analytics does is you try to fit a curve to a plot of points and then you try to analyze a large amounts of data using computers nowadays, right? Because they didn't have computers in the 1800s. And then you try to predict different population-based findings based on that data. And what you try to do is through a method of correlation, you try to say that correlation indicates causation. Now, that's not always the case. A lot of times it breeds a lot of errors. But what they're trying to do is say that okay, we have this data, we can prove a cause of something, and then we can cure that cause of something. Okay, let's talk about before the creation of the electronic health record system. Were you practicing under the Obama administration? Yeah, I graduated medical school in 2001. I've been around when electronic medical records were not even around. They were in their infancy. So I, I've seen 
pre-electronic medical records and post-electronic medical records. So you're a computer guy, Neil. So it sounds like you probably benefited from the electronic health record system because I had an amazing gynecologist. And when the electronic health record system was created, I thought she was going to have a breakdown. I remember a lot of doctors really stressing out about the electronic health record system. Has it helped medicine? Well, medicine is not record. Medicine is two things, diagnosing a disease in a patient and then trying to treat that patient. Has it streamlined things in the clinic? Or it seems like without the electronic health record system, the government wouldn't have been able to terrorize physicians. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. What happened with electronic medical record is a lot of physicians had bad handwriting. I mean, it was a commonly laughable situation where people would say that you can't read the doctor's handwriting. So people didn't understand what was in the medical records and they wanted to streamline it so that people could actually understand what was in the medical records. So what happened was the medical records then morphed into proving what you did with the patient interaction. And then they used to measure what you're actually doing with the patient to see if you're doing good care or not, or to try to modify your care. And that wasn't what the original intent of the medical record is. Also, because the medical record now is based on a, a system where you have certain fields, where you select certain fields and it generates a note, there's a lot of bloat and there's so much bloat in the medical records that the medical records are now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, thousands of pages. Because the medical records are so bloated, certain things can go in the medical record that are inaccurate, that stay around in the medical record and then, then are passed around from doctor to hospital to doctor to hospital with incorrect findings. Now, I'll explain you an interesting story. I trained in New York City first. I was at NYU, NYU downtown. I actually experienced the collapse of the two towers on 9-11. While I was training there, I worked with foreign medical doctors, doctors who came from other countries to our country. And they would say, why are you guys writing books of medical records? Our medical records are an index card. In other countries, they are not obsessed with medical records. I feel like the medical records are now being used as a, as a criminal tool against physicians, as a, a policy tool to change healthcare. It has some real bad effects, and it's really making doctors quit the practice of medicine, especially those who are not used to computers, who've never been trained in that fashion, and now have to learn a new technology into their 60s and 70s. It's just too much sometimes for a physician. Sure, sure. Which would explain the exodus of really good <laughs> older practitioners. I remember when this happened and it seemed like a great idea, but I think it's not help. I think it's only harm. There's a war on prescribers, Neil, <laughs> and I want to talk with you about Narc's Care. Bev and I took you in on a call and that's when you and Bev and Terry Lewis, God rest your soul, and other people really started to look into Narc's Care. My first question, what are your thoughts on Narc's Care? That was a fortuitous phone call when you guys called me and asked me about it. And I started looking into it. I went to APRIS. I downloaded all their medical journal articles that they had submitted. And I asked for their raw data because uh, whenever you validate a study or a tool or a medical tool, as you see with the new episodes on Hulu with this Theranos issue, people can get affected when a new technology comes out that's not tested adequately. What happened was I reached out to the, the APRIS company and they wouldn't give me the raw data, even though they said they would in their 
research journal. At that point, I was introduced to Terry Lewis from a Dr. Mark Ibsen. Terry Lewis is a researcher in pain management, and we became very good friends. I know programming myself. I know data analytics myself. And I started writing a few computer programs, putting the data that was available into the computer programs. I obtained extremely concerning results. Let me ask you really fast, since we're talking about the raw data for that study, can you briefly explain what was that study? How did they do the study? What was it for? The one in Ohio is the one you're speaking about, right? Correct. What they did was obtain records of people who had died and looked at their death records and tried to see how did they die if they died from an overdose? What was the method of their death? What was the cause of their death? Now, it could have been five different drugs in their system. It could have been cocaine, heroin, meth, alcohol, Tylenol. It could have been a Tylenol overdose. But as long as they were on an opiate medication, it was assumed from what it looks like to me in the data that they assumed that the opiate was the cause of the death. So what Neil was just talking about was the Ohio uh, study. That's when they decided to figure out a study about this algorithm. Now, they were already using the algorithm of NARCS care to determine if someone had an overdose risk, like a high overdose risk. But then after they used it, they did this study. In this study, they went through the PDMP. I think it was like 1,600 people who had passed away in Ohio from drug overdoses. So they took those people and then they the people who had died then they found the people of those who had died who also had uh, medication in the PDMP. So right away, it's already selection bias. They took these people and then they never determined if they died from heroin or not, but just if they had a prescription. And then they found, I think they did like 88 most common red flags and they narrowed it down to 12. And that's where they got the red flags of like PTSD, obstructive sleep apnea, any other mental health diagnosis and all these other things that we have no idea what they are, but that's what's in the Ohio study. The way, best way to explain to your audience is, do you know how there's Experian and Equifax, there's credit scores. A credit score tries to predict what's the credit risk someone is going to have. And they use data analytics based on your credit history to develop a risk profile. The country of China now looks at social risk to create a social risk composite score to see how good of a, or bad of a person you are in Chinese society. Well, what this is is a medical risk score, and it's trying to basically predict what chance you have of overdosing, what's your risk of overdosing, and they're trying to equate that if you have a higher risk of overdosing and your doctor is prescribing you these medicines and that doctor is not recognizing that the patient has a higher risk of overdosing, then you have a bad doctor or a criminal intent doctor, and so then they try to arrest that doctor. But when you really look into the evidence, that's not the case. Neil, do you think the government targeted you for data analytics, for NARCS care, for anything surrounding this issue? I know they did because I submitted a freedom of information application with myself and a bunch of other physicians around the country including organizations such as Doctor-Patient Forum. And they've admitted it. The government has admitted that they used data analytics in my case to develop my criminal case against me. And I'm trying to find out what is the methods, what are the equations, what's the technology that's used, and the validity and reliability testing that was done on these criminal forensic tools to make sure they're really valid, right? That they're not pseudoscientific 
tools. For example, there were carpet fibers. Carpet fiber was considered a proper criminal forensic tool, but then it was debunked later. So the doctors who were being targeted based on this technology, we want to make sure that, hey, this technology has been tested. It's been verified. It's been deemed reliable before they start throwing physicians in prison or denying patients medications that they actually need to have functional lives because you cannot cure chronic pain. There's chronic damage. It's very hard to cure. You know, you can try therapy and some other modalities to try to fix the damaged tissue, but you can't always cure it. You know, the government has to realize that there's not just curative treatments. There's treatments that allow a patient to enjoy their life to accommodate their illness and do other things with their life that gives them a meaningful life. Yeah, I I feel like the government has once again, shoot first, ask later, right? They've they've rolled out all of these, the narcs care and all of these methods to help cut down on the overdosing epidemic. And none of it's worked. It's only worsened the country's overdosing epidemic. And it's left good doctors like you. It's taken good doctors out of practice. I know so many of your patients, they adored you, Neil. And the government once again took away a patient's chance of having their pain treated by a doctor like you. Neil, for our listeners, especially our TikTok followers, what can they do to help? You, you just discussed the FOIA that you sent. Now, I'm not a computer person, but we have a lot of people who follow us. How can our followers help you get the information that you need? We need researchers and computer and data analytic people to actually look at what is being used against patients, against doctors, get the raw data, see if they can recreate the same results using the raw data. That's the first step. And that's why every scientific study, you get access to the raw data if you ask for it, because you should be able to recreate the steps of the study and get the same result. We call re- reproducibility of results. Okay. So one, we have to assure that the results are reproducible. And two, we have to be assured that the results are accurate and precise and they're reliable and they're valid. Those are the four things that are extremely useful. Otherwise, you could have another Theranos where you have a tool that really doesn't work at all. It had good intentions, but it's now been bastardized to cause extreme pain. And you're right, Claudia, the overdose risen dramatically. And the reason I think if you target physicians who are treating addiction and the medicines they have are FDA approved, so they intrinsically have benefit greater than risk. And the doctor who's trained in the American medical system, went through American residency and is licensed by the state is also providing benefit greater than risk. And if you remove both of that, if you remove medicines where benefits are greater than risk and doctors where benefits are greater than risks, all you have is risks and you have more deaths. And I think that's what's happened. Yeah. What a shame. What a shame for this country. You know, Neil, a few weeks ago, you and I had a a brief telephone call and I was saying, my God, Neil, it's just getting worse. And you said you would, I would need an army of people to advocate one-on-one. And we do need an army of people. There's just not enough advocates to go around. And you said, well, we just have to hope that they stop focusing on opioids. And you said, remember the crack epidemic. 
and how the media no longer discusses crack, right? We never hear about crack in the news. But yeah, it took like five or 10 years for the media to stop covering crack. And I wonder if we can ever reverse the damage that the media has caused this false narrative against FDA approved opioids. It's not letting up. We don't know how to get help to patients. We don't know how to get help to prescribers. And I talk about your personal story very briefly because we don't want to jeopardize your case. You were practicing, I was just looking at your CV, four pages long, always impressed with education. I had my 17-year-old come into my office. I said, look at this doctor's CV because it's impressive and attacked you and attacked your reputation. And how has this experience affected you? It's a horrible experience because I did lose my career. I lost my family. My wife left me. I haven't seen my child in a few years. The consequences have been devastating. You know, I've waited now for three years for my trial. The judge said it's going to take another six months to go to trial. It took me four years to go through medical school. So why is it taking three and a half years to go to a trial? That's not what our government and founding fathers intended. If I'm innocent until proven guilty, I haven't been allowed to work one day in my profession. And not only my profession, I haven't been allowed to work in any healthcare job whatsoever. I really haven't been allowed to earn a living. So it's been tremendously devastating. Going back to your question about advocacy, I question why we need to advocate at all, because your doctor should be your advocate. The patient and the doctor should have a relationship. The doctor should then become the patient's advocate. That's right. So you and I spoke recently also, and you said, I told you we were doing this drug seeking, red flags, how to talk to a doctor. And that was your reaction. You were like, how sad that we have to even instruct patients how to act at an appointment. Like we shouldn't have to do that. They shouldn't have to know what to say, what not to say. They should just be able to be honest and open. But it's think because government has created a pressure cooker situation. And when we first got into this, Claudia and I both were like, well, this is easy. It's just doctors need to know we don't all have issues with addiction. And it's their fault. And then when we started looking into this and realized what Claudia said earlier, that this is such a war against prescribers and started understanding that doctors have a reason to be afraid. They are literally risking not just their money, their livelihood, their license, but their freedom and their families. Patients are terrified because they're being abandoned. And so just the fact that anyone has to need an advocate, like you just said, is it's atrocious. It shouldn't be this way. We were never taught that in med school. We were never taught that you shouldn't be your patient's advocate. That was your job. That's what a lawyer's job is. And that's what a priest's job is. That's why lawyer, priest and doctor have privacy privileges so that you have a person in the community that you can go to that will offer advice and advocate for you and be your third party advocate. And I don't understand what, why would you attack the priests? Why would you attack the lawyers? Why would you attack the physicians? And that's the whole reason we've been saying, like you said earlier that some things were created with good intentions. Do you actually think things like Narc's Care were created with good intentions or do you think it was a forensic tool? It can't be with good intentions if you roll something out without seeing if something works. If you roll something out on the whole whole of society, we call that product liability. Even Theranos, they were doing it in only a few sites. Narcscare has been rolled out throughout the whole country. I mean, it's in almost all 50 states. 
I'm going to play a quick clip from the NPR show 1A that Maya and I were on with the CMO of Bamboo Health, Dr. Rawat. We're going to play more of that show later on, but I just want to play a quick clip here and then I'll tell you why after you hear it. I can tell you that the use scores, the overdose risk score are run on every single individual. Whenever someone checks the PDMP, they they see those scores. It doesn't matter who you are. So Dr. Rawat made that comment after we had said something about there being inherent gender and racial bias in NARC's care and algorithms like it. So she was actually saying how she's a woman of color, minority, and how it isn't biased because every single person in the country, if you're in a state that it's used, has a NARCS care score. But Neil made a really good point about this. That's actually really scary because if you think about it, nobody knows about NARCS care really. Very few people have even heard about it. And considering it's black box, no one knows what goes into it. And every single person in this country, if they live in a state where they use NARCS care, has a NARCS care score that very well may be used to make medical decisions about this person and the person has absolutely no idea that this is even happening. It's one thing if you're using it against patients because credit risk tool like Equifax and Experian, it's a private tool. It's only if you want to borrow money or use a credit card. With this, it's basically interfering with people's health and it doesn't measure your ICD-9 and 10 codes. Terry Lewis and I looked into that. So if it doesn't know your disease state, then how can it evaluate your treatments? So Neil, I feel like the solution to this is to get legislation to ban NARCS care in all 50 states. It's not being used in Rhode Island, but that could change. I think that's the short solution. We have to ban <laughs> NARCS care from being used because I don't believe that NARCS care was considered with any good intent. I don't think any of this was created with any good intent. It was created to attack a doctor to take the doctor's assets and to leave the pain patient with street side or Suboxone. End of story. None of this was created with good intent. This was the war on the prescriber. Yes, I think that's 100% because just the fact that I have never spoken to a <laughs> provider who knows what goes into the NARCS care overdose risk score. And that is because nobody knows unless you work for Bamboo Health because it's black box, it's proprietary. If this was with good intentions, they would tell a doctor, look, these are the factors that's going into it. This is what spits that score out so you know what you're doing. And they always say, oh, this isn't used to make medical decisions. Well, then what is it used for? Because if a doctor doesn't deny a patient medication based on the score, then that puts the doctor at risk for prescribing to somebody with a so-called high risk of overdose. And so I don't think it was created with good intentions at all. I think, you know, the first time we ever heard it spoken about, I think was at one of those RX heroin summits. And they were talking about it with the Department of Justice. I mean, this was done, I believe, to go after doctors. It's only used to make medical decisions. What else is it there for? It's used to make medical decisions and then for a doctor to get it targeted for prescribing to somebody who has a high score. Neil, as we had said before, Claudia and I tried to get other doctors to pay attention to this and nobody seemed to care. What made you care? Because the second she brought you in on that conversation, and it was the first time I ever spoke to you, you were like, yes, this is important. I need to know more. What made you react that way? The reason I reacted that way is one, I'm familiar with data 
So when you told me that there was a score that was being used to evaluate patients, that really piqued my interest because I never knew of a score. And two, I didn't think it would be possible because medicine is extremely complicated. You know, there's millions of diseases and millions of treatments. I don't know how many ICD-9 codes there are, ICD-10 codes, but that's the comprehensive amount of disease. And then when you factor in all the treatments and the physician drug reference is a big textbook, now you have millions of combinations of diseases and possible treatments, millions and millions, maybe a trillion. So I didn't think it was possible for a computer to do such a thing. You and I talked about this before, but I tried to explain to you how Google, whenever you go to a supermarket, they give you a rewards card or Facebook. They collect as much information about you as possible so they can sell you things because they're advertising. Google makes their money from advertising. Facebook makes their money from advertising. And they have extremely robust data analytics departments. And all these companies, Netflix, they're able to predict what movies you would like to watch. But you yourself know that if you have Netflix, that you always don't watch the movies they recommend to you. Sometimes you pick a different movie. So it's not always predicted. What they tried to do was send a person coupons for shampoos. If they had known that someone had been buying shampoo for 10 years, that we should target those people and send coupons to them so they keep buying shampoo from us. Well, they found out, well, you can't even predict what shampoo someone's going to buy from month to month or what products they're going to buy from month to month because people's tastes change and you can't predict that. So I had read all these studies before. I knew about what was going on in the computers because I'm very into computers. So when I heard these kind of things being used against patients, all these alarm bells started ringing in my head that this should not be possible. It's probably impossible that it's vaporware, that if Google and Facebook that have very large computers, you know, servers and servers of computers, if they have difficulty predicting what you will buy so they can service an advertisement, the acquisition of an advertisement, I think is less than 5%. So even if they target an advertisement and offer you a big discount, the chance of you jumping on that is less than 5%. So if they can't do that with a shampoo, they shouldn't be using it against patients. Yeah, that's Does a that great, make sense? Yeah, that's a great, that's an excellent answer. Do you think there's any chance at all that we are going to ever be able to have NarcsCare banned? Well, you might not be able to get it banned. If the FDA hasn't approved it. It shouldn't be used as a diagnostic or medical diagnostic tool to make medical decisions unless it's been proven to be effective and clinically valid. And that's what Jen Oliva is working on because, Claudia, do you remember when you and I called the FDA and they didn't even know what Narc's Care was? They were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Most doctors don't know what Narc's Care is. A lot of medical professionals don't know what it is. Right. So, So Jen's, yeah, Jen's trying to, I think at least that's what she told me last year, trying to get the FDA kind of hold their feet to the fire when it comes to this because right now, no one is really regulating it. It's something that happened in medicine and and there are very few government agencies that even know what it is, let alone care to regulate it. So hopefully at least we can get it uh, better regulated at some point. I think that's a good thing for the doctor-patient forum to do because you guys heard about it first because you're connected with all these people around the country. So you guys hear about things way before people contact you. And it's, from my understanding, hundreds of people contact you weekly. And when hundreds of people contact you weekly, then you guys are like sentinels. You guys pick up on what the issues that are involving patients. So you probably understand the situation first and better than anyone. 
And that's why you brought it to my attention. And then I brought it to some academics attention. But I think you guys need to be on the forefront of this. And you guys are the real leaders of this technology and understanding this technology. I hope you continue your mission. We will. No, hey, no pressure there, Neil. Right. (laughs) We'll do the best we can. You know, Neil, we wouldn't have been able to get as far as we have on the research with this without your help and the help of Terry Lewis. I want to thank you so much for just taking the stuff that we learned, taking it and running with it, because we would never know any of this stuff without your ability to break down statistics and see if it's even something that's worthwhile. Okay, Neil, we're going to wrap up this interview. Before we do, I want to hear final thoughts from you. Give me some of your final thoughts. Well, one, thank you for having me on the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. It's been a wonderful experience. Two, thank you for your support and thank you for the research that you guys do. I find the research that the Doctor Patient Forum does is extremely high quality and all the links list the evidence that you guys have collected over the past couple of years. So nobody can say that, oh, you guys are presenting a false narrative because there's proof for everything that you guys have collected. So that's that's excellent. Three, in memoriam of Terry Lewis, Dr. Terry Lewis, I'm glad that there were a small group of people who were willing to look at this issue, which could develop into an extremely large issue because if it affects millions of people, there had to be a canary in the coal mine. And I feel like the Doctor Patient Forum and a small team of individuals were the actual canary in the coal mine. And we can at least try to save all the coal miners by bringing this issue out to the entire nation and community. So thank you for that. And four, I would like to also thank Doctor Patient Forum for communicating with physicians and giving physicians and patients a voice together because there's some organizations that are just patient oriented and some organizations that are just physician oriented. It's good to have a combination of both. And for you guys to be the doctor patient forum, I think that's the way to move, you know, the next century of medicine forward, which is to have patients and doctors working together and fighting together and controlling their own personal treatment plan, because that's a personal decision. The decision to how you want to treat your illness and what methods and scientific methods you decide to treat your illness, whether it's homeopathy to allopathic medicine, to physical therapy, to injection therapy, to spinal cord stimulators, to whatever. It's it's a personal choice between a physician and their patient. No third party should really get in the way of that. So yeah. thank you for giving the freedom to patients and doctors. I think that's that's good. Much needed words. We thank you for that. And, you know, the doctor-patient form, we continue to focus on protecting the sanctity of the doctor-patient relation. So listen, I hope everybody enjoyed uh, this episode discussing what NARC's care is and how it's interrupted the doctor-patient sanctity. Once again, folks, leave us a note. Bev, what can people do as far as wrapping up this NARC's care episode? Can they check out their NARC's care score? As we talk about in the episode, no one is entitled to see their NARC's care score. You're not allowed. They're not even supposed to tell you about it. They're not even supposed to use the word NARC's care. So no, you can't see your NARC's care score. The best you can do is send away for your PDMP report like it's 1850. You have to, in my state, you have to send away in the mail and wait nine months to get it, which I still never got it. But some people like have had luck. I mean, I did have a pharmacist show it to me. I 
I had some luck there. So sometimes a doctor or pharmacist will have mercy on us and show it to us. But yeah, I just hope people find this interesting. We'll have in the show notes, the links to we have a lot of information on our website about Narc's Care. We'll have all of those links there. I'll have links to the Ohio study that we just spoke about where they base this information on link to Maya's article. And then next week, again, we're going to listen to part of the 1A interview with Maya, Jen White, and me, and Dr. Rawat from Bamboo Health. We'll link that to that also. That's still on 1A's website or NPR's website. And then we're going to listen to the three women. Of course, they're all women who were penalized by Narc's Care next week, and we'll hear what they have to say. Excellent. Just a quick disclaimer that what you hear in our podcast is not to be considered medical or legal advice. We are not healthcare professionals. We are chronic pain and illness patients who became advocates after having bad experiences in the healthcare system. We will always provide links in the show notes to give evidence for what we are saying. We are dedicating this episode and the next episode to Dr. Terry Lewis. Terry tragically passed away a few months ago after a short battle with cancer. Terry was a fierce advocate for the chronic pain and illness community who spent countless hours researching NARC's care. Terry had a PhD in rehabilitation from the Rehabilitation Institute at Southern Illinois University. She had a license as a licensed professional counselor. She is terribly missed by our community, but I know her work will live on. If you have any comments that you would like to leave us about this episode, as always, please reach out to us at Bev at the DrPatientForum.com or Claudia at the DrPatientForum.com. We look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Dr. Patient Forum podcast.